0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to uh, get uh, all of our wares, including um, up-to-the-minute coverage of everything Corona and COVID and the economic stimulus stuff and all the rest. And uh, today's episode is brought to you by Blue Vine. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So uh, this is, I'm in the podcast studio at the dispatch offices, and I've made all sorts of youngins risk their lives to come in and do this. I feel very guilty about it. And uh, we've been wanting to do this podcast for several months now. Um, I met today's guest. We were both asked to speak at a VMI conference. That's the Virginia Military Institute. And uh, she gave a great talk. It was really interesting. And there's a lot of weird overlap between some of her stuff and some of my stuff. And uh, we just kept kicking the can for various and sundry reasons. And then we had a plague. So it made things even more complicated. So she is um, doing this by remote. I can see here, but you can't. Um, and she is, the she I'm referring to is Michelle Gelfond, And she is the author of Rulemakers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World and uh you are also the distinguished professor of psychology at the university of maryland college park right i got that right right welcome
1: Thank nice you. to finally have great, you on here. Great, great to be here
0: so um we've gotten some feedback from people that they're already hitting uh coronavirus fatigue and, and i don't mean like from the disease but from all the talk about it but uh we should at least start with it and how it well not, we don't have to start with it why don't we start with actually your argument in your book then we can do a couple minutes about the corona stuff and then see where we go from there. So um, why don't you just give us the big picture of what the book is about, what your argument is, and then I will, um, I will deliver searing questions that uh, will illuminate and shed more Woo. light than heat. Uh, so anyway, take it away.
1: Sure. So yeah, I'm a cross-cultural psychologist, so I've been studying how nations around the world vary psychologically over the last 25 years. You know, the idea is to try to move beyond East versus West, red versus blue, rich versus poor. What are the deeper cultural codes that drive our behavior? And my work focuses on how strict social norms are around the world. And the idea is that norms are important in any society. Uh, They help us, these unwritten rules for behavior that sometimes become more formalized, they help us to coordinate on a constant basis. If we didn't have norms, we, we couldn't really exist as a species. But some societies have strict norms. They're what I call tight cultures. And some societies have more loose norms. They have more permissiveness. Uh, we call them loose cultures. And the book really kind of maps out why these differences evolve. You know, why is Japan, Singapore, Germany, Austria, why do they veer tight? That's what our data shows that we published in science some years ago. And why do cultures like the US in general, um, Italy, Brazil? The netherlands uh, why do they veer loose so we, we identify the factors that predict the evolution of these differences and then we look at the consequences for human groups and in general what we find is that there's a trade-off in terms of order and openness in tight and loose societies um and so this is really kind of the gist of the book i talk about tight loose as a fractal pattern mm-hmm. this repeated pattern across levels that's a kind of a physics metaphor that we can use the same flashlight the same dimension of tight loose to understand differences at the 50 states in terms of social class organizations and it also has implications for how we respond to things like pathogen threats uh in you know what we're experiencing just right now so that's the kind of big picture um i could talk about anything and all things about one of
0: the things i like about the the fractal analogy is that for people who don't know one of the cool things about fractal patterns is that they replicate at almost any altitude from which you look at them so you can look at a fractal pattern in a in a in a in a snowflake, and if you pull out far enough, you can also see sort of fractal patterns in continental shelves, right? I mean so it's one of these things that scales up. And that's that's what I take you to be meaning by this, right? Because exactly. it, yeah. it is not it is not just there are tight cultures and there are loose cultures. They're actually tight subcultures and loose subcultures. They're also just tight people and loose people, right? And so it's it, it works at sort of every level and it's not a hard and fast, like left and right thing. It is more about a, a, a tendency and a social adaptation more than anything else. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, actually, one of the things I think is most interesting about it is to see whether there's similarity in the antecedents and consequences of the construct at all these different levels, like it's there kind of homology. And that's kind of what we've been finding from the nation to the neuron. You know, we could see similar patterns, um, and like you said, we can zoom in into any system and sort of see tight and loose elements, uh, including in the household. I mean, I think this is really relevant right now when we're dealing with such close quarters, based on Corona and the quarantines. You know, how we negotiate conflicts that come from some people being tighter than and other people being looser. How do we help kids who tend to be looser and have looser mindsets? You could take a tight loose mindset quiz at my website to, to sort of see where you veer based on your own experiences. Um, you know how do we help kids to deal with this increased tightening all of a sudden? So there's a lots of different um, sort of ways in which the construct illuminates uh, dynamics at different levels.
0: So, uh, what before we got? I want to I want to talk about married couples in a second because I think it's interesting. <laughs> I, I am I am definitely on because this is also one of the things I think people don't necessarily grasp is that you can be loose in certain contexts and tight in other contexts. Right. That's I mean, right. Exactly. That's um, right. But. Um, why don't you give a couple examples, sort of broad, big picture of what you mean by tight cultures? Talk about clocks and places like Germany and sure. all of that kind of thing, just so people get a better grasp of. As Edmund Burke said, "Example is the school of mankind," and he will learn. No <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> That's right. So you know, I started out this this project, um, which is a study across thirty plus nations, trying to understand, you know, why is it that in Singapore, which is called the fine nation, you know, people can get fined for spitting, for chewing gum. Uh, for even walking in front of the curtains naked as compared to like places like let's say New Zealand that um, where people walk barefoot in banks and in many places in the country. Uh, why are clocks super synchronized in Germany and in Switzerland um, and in Japan where like literally in city clocks, they're off by nano milliseconds, whereas in Brazil and you know Italy, you're not totally sure what time it is because the clocks are really not aligned. And, that, and we tried to bring together these examples to then, use tools of science to quantify how strict or permissive, how synchronized or, or uncoordinated our nations. And that's exactly what we did. We d- deployed surveys and we uh, actually had RAs all over the world measuring things like how much are cars parked out of the lines, <laughs> how much are clocks aligned on city streets. Uh, we had students going around the world wearing fake facial stigmas, like warts that I bought them um, to like ask for help in city streets. Because the idea is that tight cultures, like I mentioned, Singapore, Japan, uh, Austria, Germany, they tend to have a lot of order. They have less crime. They have more monitoring. uh, They have more synchrony, like I mentioned, in city streets um, and coordinated social action. They're more likely to wear more similar things, and they have more self-regulation, which just means that people are monitoring their impulses because they know they could get punished. Uh, Lewis cultures struggle with order. Uh, They have much less uh, monitoring, more crime, less synchrony, they have a host of self-regulation problems like debt, obesity, smoking, alcoholism. But loose cultures corner the market on openness. So our data show that they're much more open to people who look different, who act different, who are stigmatized. In, in city streets, people who wear these ridiculous warts, in my studies, are tattoos and nose rings. They get more help in city streets. And they're also more creative. So they're better able to uh, come up with new ideas. Big crowdsourcing studies show that loose cultures win those contests much more so there's a trade-off that we see around the world in terms and, of order and openness.
0: And so the the but the city thing, according to you, cities for the most part tend to be looser, right? But there are some exceptions to that. But the the, the city thing because it's was it the was it the Germans used to say, "Stadtfuel macht du frei." City air makes you free, right? Is like you're allowed to get away with more stuff, and partly because of the anonymity of it. That's right. Actually, you. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, and you just nailed it on the head. Like Cities, while they're really densely populated, which makes people, uh, pushes groups towards tightness. When you have a lot of people around, you need rules to coordinate. But cities are an exception because they tend to be super diverse, mm-hmm. and diversity pushes groups toward looseness, and they tend to be super mobile. And they don't have a lot of accountability cities. It's not as though people like are really uh, calling people out on their norm violations in these contexts. So in general, cities do tend to be looser. I think around the world we see an increasing conflict. The tight, loose access has been shifting from sort of na- national differences to within nations, these sort of cities, cosmopolitan areas versus rural manufacturing areas that are much tighter um, and where the eyes are upon you, where the gossip mill is really strong. That helps people stay in line. Um, so that's we, we see that's all over the world. Um, and it, I could talk later about how I think it impacted the the dynamics, populism and and other electoral dynamics and data sure. we have on that. But, but generally speaking, though, that's right, cities are are, are they pushed toward looseness
0: um so I, one of the things I was kind of wondering about this is, you know, because I mean one of the things I think we should be clear about is that you're not saying looseness, good, tightness, bad, right? These are like saying forks are better than knives well it <laughs> depends what you're using them for right because as you yeah. put it social norms are tools in effect they're communal tools for how you deal with challenges and whatnot and there are times you wouldn't want the marines to be loose yeah. and you wouldn't want um uh an artist colony to be too tight right i mean there's yeah. different horses for different courses kind of thing but um the, the thing i was kind of wondering about is whether or not um, the looseness of cities is in part um, the byproduct of the division of labor, right? Where in, in tighter, smaller, where communities where civil society is richer, um, people are expected to sort of chip in and help other people. And in a big, bustling metropolitan, cosmopolitan center, people have their jobs and that's it. And they're supposed to take care of their people and their concerns. And then, and I grew up in New York City, and mm-hmm. you have to really push New Yorkers to be nice people, and then they can be. But, you know, a
1: New Yorkers, I can attest to that. Yeah. But
0: we all have this sort of, you know, this force field around us that says, you know, I'm going to get out of my bubble and help somebody only if it's like it really violates my moral code. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just not my business. And in a small sort of agrarian society, other people's business kind of is your business and requires more sort of uh, reciprocity. Is that part of it?
1: Yeah, it is. totally is. Actually, I think the main issue has to do with the need for coordination. Like in rural areas, in context, and we have data on this, in pre-industrial societies, we studied about 80 of them using the human relations area files. And we can code these ethnographies to look at how much were these societies focused on agriculture? How much were they focused on having to cultivate the land as compared to other societies and it clearly is related to tightness so anytime you coordination whether it's in an airline or whether it's in a rural area or it's in a military context strong rules tight rules and punishments for deviance from those rules are really important for survival so we have lots of data that suggests that you know we can kind of predict when this will become when when they're involved more uh i want to make one more point about you know the good or bad that a lot of people try to push me to say which is better Right. And you, when you have people you know, vote on this, they obviously coming from their own vantage points, they have different opinions. But this is an age old philosophical question. You know, what's better, rules or liberty? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my answer to this is that, you know, neither of them are, are the best. The, the, basically, groups need to veer tight or loose for good reasons based on threat right. and coordination. But what I find in our research is that as groups get extreme, either too loose or too tight, they tend to really become dysfunctional. Our, we have research we published that shows that extreme tightness and extreme looseness, like for example, the Ukraine or Venezuela and our data were really super loose. No people would just thought there were really very few rules coordinating right. action. Or Pakistan on the opposite extreme, uh, super tight in our data. Those two extremes tend to have higher suicide, they tend to have lower happiness. You can think about that even at industry level, like United arguably was getting too tight. Uh, I would argue Uber and Tesla, that they should be veering loose, but they were arguably also getting too loose and not being able to scale up. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge, and this is what I call tight, loose ambidexterity, is being able to kind of tweak your norms as they're getting too tight or too loose um, so that you cannot really have too many um, problems with order or openness, depending on your vantage point. Um, And I think they are negotiable, these norms. Like uh, even in the household, we can get back to that. You can negotiate how strict or or loose you wanna be and what domains and try to have a healthy balance. And that's kind of what we, in the book, I have a whole chapter on the Goldilocks principle of tight, loose, which Mm -hmm. is again, how do we sort of strike a balance between tight and loose? And the coronavirus context really does also illustrate that. We need strict rules to coordinate and to to maintain this virus, but we need to be creative and explore lots of options within that that constraint in order to deal with the long-term nature of this virus. Yeah,
0: so I mean, one of the things I, I want to get to the virus, but I mean, one of the things, sort of, um, that I like about the book is, in this whole sort of scheme. I mean, you, you can have a tight reading of the whole theory or a loose one, and I think it's a loose one. It is extremely useful and kind of entertaining, and informative to just hold up, sort of a different lens to look at the world with. I'm a big, you know, one of my big um, obsessions. I talked about this at the VMI thing is to look at the world not as Imagine yourself as someone from 500 years ago or Mm 1,000 years ago, not to say what would surprise you, but what would seem familiar and recognizable, right? Yeah. A a mom nursing a baby would be recognizable to somebody from 10,000 years ago, flying plane, not so recognizable. Mm -hmm. But there's all sorts of forms of social organization, norms that sort of are epiphenomenal that come out of just being humans that would actually be much more recognizable than we – sometimes appreciate. And yeah. one of the examples I always use is North Korea. You know, the labels that we apply to places like North Korea may be different, but it would be utterly recognizable to Hammurabi as a, as a, yeah. as a monarchy or a divine yeah. empire or whatever the terms would yeah. be. But, you know, they have notions of intergenerational uh, legitimacy that have nothing to do with Marxist dogma or anything mm-hmm. like that. And there are lots of things around my, one of my favorite examples of that is um, Mexican teachers unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in many parts of Mexico, your job as a teacher is heritable. So it doesn't actually matter if you know, are good at chemistry. If your mom was a chemistry <laughs> teacher, you get the jo- you inherit the job. And um, and so I think that some of those kinds of things are, are sort of really interesting. But one of the things that I think is very useful for someone like me to get out of my silo is that there's a lot of Hayek in here, even though Hayek isn't mentioned. You know, One of the things yeah. that people like Edmund Burke and Friedrich Hayek talk about is how Customs and norms and traditions evolve to solve problems. Yes. And, yeah. um, and those that problem-solving function, you know, p- people who read my newsletter know that I'm always quoting G.K. Chesterton's Fence, where he has this parable of the fence where a guy says, you know, he says the modern reformer finds a fence in the middle of the woods, doesn't know why it's there, mm-hmm. and so he wants to tear it down because he can't figure out what its purpose is. And the conservative says... You may be right that we need to tear it down. But first, you have to figure out why someone put it up. Yeah. Right. And and so looking at traditions and customs and norms and saying there's a reason why they evolved is the first thing you have to do if you want to be some loose modernizer who says, oh, all traditions and customs and norms are just sort of reactionary. No, they might actually have a good purpose. And so, for example, explain why Japan has a tight culture. I mean, are one of the reasons why.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I was betting my money on or NSF's money on that project um, that was published on tight loose was that countries that have a lot of threat. Think about Mother Nature, like constant natural disasters, um, constant famine or countries that have a lot of human made threat, constant invasions on your own soil um, or even just, you know, population density. We studied this as far back as 1500 and things like pathogen threats. You know, some countries right. are, these are not randomly assigned. Some countries like Japan, uh, like China, have had a history of threat. And the, the idea is pretty simple, is that when you have those kind of collective threats, you need strict rules to coordinate to survive. And that's what we did. We measured how many times have you been potentially invaded over the last hundred years? How many right. uh, natural disasters have we had? And we had a very, saw a very strong connection between the amount of threat a country has in general, There's some exceptions, really super interesting ex- examples like Israel, that defy this logic. I can get into that later, um, but those countries tend to be tight, and our computational models and other methods have shown the same thing: that when you have a lot of threat, what co- it causes cooperation and punishment to evolve, and it helps groups to survive these contexts. Um, and so that's really one point I want to make. I want to also backtrack to your point about you know one of the fascinating things about cross-cultural psych is we're trying to look at you know why cultures evolve, so that we can help people to be less judgmental to your point Mm -hmm. about the, 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 uh, the fence metaphor. And one of the examples of books I provide is, you know, Americans look at this idea that you have to ban gum in Singapore as being like preposterous. Like, why would you ever ban gum? And, you know, I try to talk about this as once you understand, not every cultural difference has this logic, but I want you to understand why these differences evolved to solve some problem. We could become much more understanding less and less ethnocentric. So in the late eighties, you know, Singapore has about 20,000 people per square mile. Uh, Compare that to New Zealand, it has like 60 people per square mile and more sheep per capita than people. Mm -hmm. You know, Lee Kuan Yew said, "Look, guys, we have a." And actually, he was a prime architect of of tightness in Singapore from the top down. He said, "We have a lot of challenges ecologically. We have very little arable land, huge population density. We're going to have to have some rules here." And in the late 80s, people were chewing gum, and I guess that's people like to do. They were throwing the gum on the ground, and they were putting it on the sensors uh, and, and trains and elevators, and it was causing a massive mess. So he said, look, guys, we're just going to have to ban this tasty treat treat with so many mouths per capita. And, you know, people, I think it, originally the poll show were upset, but then they gradually got used to this and thought this is the right answer in this context. And so, you know, a lot of times we don't understand, you know, that we come from a culture. Right. Herodotus said years ago in the histories, you know, all humans are ethnocentric. We sort of view the world through our own lens and we don't just see that it's you know, it is, but it's, we think it's correct. And I think that my goal as a cross-cultural psychologist has been, always been to kind of understand through, you know, the scientific method, how cultures vary and, and try to trace it to their their origins. Um, again, not all cultural differences can be explained in this way, but a lot of them can. And I actually serendipitously became a cross-cultural psychologist. I was pre-med and I was in London for a semester and I thought it was so different and crazy and I was having massive culture shock. So I called my dad, who's an engineer from Brooklyn, and I said, you know, dad, Look, people are just traveling from London to Paris or to Amsterdam for the weekend. It just felt really crazy. And he said, well, and it's changed my life, this call. He said, well, imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, what a great metaphor, Pop. So literally, this is true. The next day, I I booked a low budget trip uh, to Egypt. To, to sail, to go on the Nile for a couple of weeks. And he was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, well, it's like <laughs> going from New York to California, pop. Don't worry about it. And, you know, I, it was there that I realized that, you know, culture is so invisible, but it's so important and omnipresent I'm and I know nothing about it. Yeah. And I, I basically came back, I was at Colgate University and I just switched gears and I found a cross-cultural site class. And then I figured I'd go on to work at the state department, but I wound up getting, you know, interested in research on the topic. Pack my bags to Champagne Urbana to work with Harry Triandis, you know, one of the founders of the field, and then the rest is history. So, my goal has been to try to make this invisible force of culture understandable and, and rational, in a sense, mm-hmm. to your point.
0: So, I, I can't remember, can't remember the guy's name. You probably remember it, but there's some sociologists who came up with a list of universals that basically all cultures have. Yeah, Brown. Right? It was
1: Brown. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's sort of. I mean. Because this is one of the things that I, I just sort of find fascinating is people, particularly Americans, Americans, this is something that immigrants are very useful for, is pointing out that America has a culture. Yeah. Because America, and it's like your big thing about uh, fish don't know they're wet. Yeah. You know, Americans <laughs> think culture is something other countries have.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And, um, but what's sort of interesting to me is that, like, there are hundreds, I think, are on the list now of things that, for the most part, all cultures everywhere stigmatized to one extent or another now now some may may find it punishable by death and others frown upon it you know and some can sometimes you can train people to overlook it and get past it like homosexuality 500 years ago is you know in a lot of cultures was pretty frowned upon um uh and like incest is still one i think everywhere is pretty strongly frowned upon right um
1: not marrying your first cousins though
0: <laughs> that's right. No, that's, that's right. Great, I mean, I,
1: that's a pretty, pretty big variation on, uh, on how much, you know, marrying cousins and first and second cousins varies around the world. But that really has a, also a big association on, on tightness and on other dimensions of culture.
0: There's a, there's a political science school of thought that says that basically Western individualism was largely born of the, from the outlawing of cousin marriage.
1: Uh, That's right.
0: It it smashed these nepotistic tribes and made people more relational to the state than to their clans in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's
1: right. I mean, I think it's multiply determined. But, you know, another thing that we can see um, is that, you know, there's arguments about, you know, Pinker's thesis on on violence declining or threat declining. But actually, you know, in our data on the U.S., when we look at. you know, tightness over time. Clearly, we just published this paper in Nature, Human Behavior. Feel, clearly, like, we've gotten much looser over the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that loosening in many countries around the world is the decrease in, in threat um, and the decrease in uh, ecological threat, human-made threat. I mean, of course, now we have a different situation. When threat increases, we, we start seeing an increase in tightness. Right. Um, and the need for tightness, for that matter, uh, to help coordinate in the face of threat. So, um so, but yeah, um, I think it's it's you're right that there's all these kind of universals we can kind of broaden our, broaden ourselves out to look at. We all eat, we all sleep, we all have sex, we all, you know, have funerals. But then there's so much within those contexts that it varies, some differences that really are important um around the world. That's what we try to look at. What are the most important dimensions of cultural variation?
0: So you said to me I hope this and if it's if it's you speak me divulging something you said um <laughs> Uh, in confidence we will cut it out of the podcast so it won't show up but um uh you said we didn't have time to talk about it when we were at vmi um that you're a fan of um jonathan heights but you have some disagreements or some quibbles with the moral foundations theory stuff
1: yeah Um, I mean, is that that right i mean i don't want to mischaracterize your position actually um the the main source of um it's not even a quibble. It's just, um, it's it's more about what the implications of how we deal with what he talks about. Because I, mm-hmm. I certainly believe that is the coddling of the American mind that's happening. Uh, it's, so it doesn't have to do with moral foundations. It has to do more with the, the more recent book on... on okay, uh, so the, the righteous mind, mind stuff
0: you're okay with? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I okay. think that, you know, that there's, you know, lots of interesting angles on that that those foundations. You know, are they universal? Are they found everywhere? Are they... They're, they're even... Trying to explore other possible moral foundations. So, I mean, I think as we continue to do research on this, we might find there's more or less of them, you know, sure. depending on. So, they're about get I more
0: granular it, that ones yeah. that look like they're a coherent whole thing yeah. are actually smaller taste buds that we just haven't been able to pry That's apart right. yet.
1: That's you know. right. And and I think that for that reason, I really love their approach. If you look at their website, they're like, here's all the criticisms of, the, of what we're doing, and right. here's how we respond. And I really appreciated that. Um, kind of openness, transparency of like oh let's let's kind of try to find other ones or try to see if we can pull the ones together. My main uh, point was related to the coddle in the American mind, and I think I agree that a lot of kids are getting um, you know kind of coddled, and it's, in a sense, a lot of tightening has been happening in terms mm-hmm. of uh, American uh, middle class. But I don't think the solution is you know more play dates and more time outside and. And, and so forth. I think that it's grounded this increase in, in, in coddling by people's perceptions of threat that's happening based on uh, the economy, globalization, that's happening um, based on uh, inequality. Um, and, and just how difficult it is even to get your kid in college these days. I've just experienced it myself. I mean, it's unbelievable to yeah. watch a kid who has like way higher scores than I did as a kid and way more involvement to get rejected from almost everywhere. Yeah. Uh, That, you know, and so I think the in the American mind is really a instantiation of tightness. And I think that trying to negotiate the the threat and trying to deal with a threat is probably as important as giving kids more free time and more time to explore and and less hovering. Because I think it's evolved for a good reason, this this um, new trend. And we have to deal with the source of it versus, you know, kind of some of the other remedies that have been offered.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of the problem is the defining of threat right I mean because someone who was alive 200 years ago if you told them that you had to organize your entire adolescence around the idea of getting into Brown University (laughs) they would have thought that's insane you know I'm trying to make sure my wife doesn't die my kids don't die of consumption or whatever right so we're defining down the definition of threat and ratcheting up the fear of the negative consequences, right? I mean, it's like, it should not be that you feel you're doomed if you don't get into the right quintile of university. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly yeah. since something like the majority of college, mo- the jo- majority of young people still don't uh, at least finish college, right? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot right. of them tr- start, and, but that gets to economic policy and all the rest. And, and yeah. I, I'm happy I to think, go back to that tangent, yeah. but... Um, so the one thing I, I I do want to get your sense on is I mean there are a bunch of things but um, getting back to the cities and stuff and diversity fostering looseness there's also reason to believe that sometimes when you introduce um, new players onto the board right whether yeah. they're basically immigrants um, they can be internal immigrants external yeah. immigrants whatever um, uh, that often elicits a tightening from. The incumbents who okay. feel like, I mean, you just watch Gangs of New York, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the old English gangs are furious about the new Irish gangs leading to the decadence of Western civilization, yeah, and yeah. they tighten up the rules on all yeah. these kinds of things. And there's, there's that kind of stuff all over the place. Um, how, much, how much do you think that that is, like, the response to immigration in the last 15, 20 years, how much do you think, how much does your theory fit yeah. into
1: that? Yeah. Well, I want to just mention this underscores the idea that perceived threat is as important as objective threat in tightening groups. So we could see that, you know, in our laboratory, we see that in the field. Um, And so even with the case of like the middle-class parents, like it's about perceptual threat. So some obviously real threat that happens that tightens groups um, as we see now um, in the coronavirus. But a lot of the same effects we have in terms of Tightness happens when people just perceive it. And that's an important issue when it comes to immigration, because it's nearly what we find in our studies is that people totally misperceive the percentage of people that are mm-hmm. illegal in the country. Right. Um, so, so it's a matter of like, how do we help people calibrate? Yeah, there are people coming in, but they perceive a threat because a they feel like it's just enormous number of people. And our data suggests that, you know, it's frankly, it's pretty low. Doesn't mean we should not be vigilant. Mm -hmm. Um, but also people misperceive the immigrants themselves. They perceive them as loose and as Mm -hmm. kind of, they're going to corrupt the culture. And in fact, some research would suggest the opposite, that they're more likely to be much more rule abiding, um, and more religious, um, and so forth. So I think a lot of times this just means we have to really be clear on what the objective facts are uh, because tightening up is important in terms of objective threat to coordinate and to be synchronized and self-regulated discipline. But if we get too tight. We start becoming much less open, more ethnocentric, less creative, less adaptable. And so it's it's something that I think uh, we need to have some real conversations on, especially as fake threat and misperceived threat seems to be on the rise. Um, And again, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be vigilant, um, but I do think that people's perceived threat are a little bit out of whack uh, when it comes to immigration.
0: Um, So this raises something uh, I sort of want your general professional take on. And then I have a follow up question about it. um, I've become more and more interested in evolutionary psychology. I used mm-hmm. to think it was overdone. I still think sometimes it is overdone, um, but uh, where do you, where does it stand as a um, as a discipline in the broader mm-hmm. world of the guild that you're in? Right. I mean, yeah. like you're a respected psychologist, and you're. you're a, a peer among professionals and all the rest—you get the sense that sometimes it is considered almost sort of an impermissible cult among <laughs> the pros. We, we, how is it seen? I'm just—it's a purely journalistic informational yeah. question.
1: Uh, you know, I think it's a really interesting point. It's taken a while to really kind of catch on in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the journal space in this field has been dedicated to like testosterone and estrogen, and and you know, lots of interesting questions on you know. Hip ratio stuff um, mm-hmm. that I think psychology is now getting more excited about. Um, I think that my area is really more in cultural evolution. So it's really right. distinct from that. And so I don't really kind of uh, necessarily dabble in that space. And in fact, we just formed a new society that has like several, over a thousand people now bringing in biologists, bringing in modelers, archaeologists, economists. Psychologists, that's the Society for the Study of Cultural Evolution. Mm-hmm. It's really a very different approach than is taken in evolutionary psychology, um, which uh, is more kind of innate and focused on gender and and, and so forth. So I, I don't think that they're inconsistent necessarily, but they just focus on such different problems yeah. that they haven't come together.
0: Because I'll tell you, as an outsider who's not a psychologist at all um, and only dabbles in these things... Um, I just don't see that huge conflict between the things. I mean, we just talked about human universals, right? Um, uh, I mean, I remember reading uh, what was uh, Robert Wright's, uh, the moral, not the moral animal. um, It was that book about Darwin. It was the first Mm thing I read about um, uh, the social animal. God, it'll come Mm -hmm. to me Um, about evolutionary psychology and EO Wilson and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, the fact that there's never been um, a culture where, women were as remotely interested in pornography as men are, right? Yeah. Or um, uh, or this is a point Francis Fukuyama makes in, in his books about, um, you know, the development of the state and all the rest, um, where he says, there's never been a society anywhere in the world where people didn't give special preference for family and friends yeah. over strangers, right? I mean, that is a wired thing. And you go back yeah. and you read Darwin, and Darwin says, um, you know, that – community tribes with to shorten it, you know, tribes with a sense of social cohesion and yeah. and cooperation are more likely to pass on their genes than random, you know, you know, uh, autonomous individuals. Mm-hmm. Just because cooperation is the only way you can survive in a state of nature, right? Which is why Rousseau is wrong about everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not about everything. Maybe he had some good stuff mm-hmm. about education, but um, and so I just I find the hostility to it kind of interesting. Um, but the the place I wanted to go with this is there's this guy, John Tooby, you probably yeah. heard of. Yeah. And he wrote this wonderful piece a couple of years ago on the coalition instinct. Mm-hmm. And it coincided, and we're moving towards politics now. Yeah. It, it coincided with my um, apostasy um, on the right uh, because I was working on that book, Suicide of the West, and I was uh, just not drinking the Kool-Aid on Donald Trump. And um, so I actually ideologically haven't changed mm-hmm. very much. But all of a sudden I have this sort of cross-cultural distance to my own team in a way Mm -hmm. that I didn't have before. And so one of the things that I kind of, I can actually, so his point is that coalitions, we have a natural instinct to form coalitions. It's not just tribes or family. It's any group where you have shared interests against the larger number of your own group or opposing group or whatever. And it causes you to overlook your own internal inconsistencies and hypocrisies. And uh, be hyper attentive yeah. to the ones on the other side.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I now live in this world where, yeah, I think on policy, the, I'm much more on the right. Obviously, I'm a free market guy. I'm a limited mm-hmm. government guy. But on the sociology of how left and the psychology of how left and right, particularly on Twitter, argue with each other, yeah, I see mirror images of each other yeah, rather than right. like grand philosophical yeah. differences. You know. Their worst people are examples of all of them, and our best people are examples of all yeah. of us.
1: Yeah, you know? there's there's a lot of research in psychology on sort of these group-serving biases and, you know, how, like, how much we're just telling stories in our coalitions. You know, we did this research right. where we were almost like a telephone game, passing on a conflict that happened to our own group versus a condition where you weren't really part of a group and you can see that when you start the chain and you have a conflict that you then one person sends that conflict across the chains keeps repeating it by the end of that chain the conflict looks completely different than when yeah. they first started discussing it then they start like blaming the out group more bringing in new information exonerating the in group changing the facts and we have actual data on this that can you can see how much stories about conflict are so group serving So if we think about conflicts as stories, then we can start thinking about, wait, what did we leave out that um, our group's doing that's bad? What do we, I mean, we know that it's really hard to devise people in terms of fairness, because we often think we're more fair than other people are, and they're Mm -hmm. more unfair than us. I just did an exercise with my students. I teach a class on negotiation where I had them write for five minutes, think about fair behaviors out there. And if you think, think start the sentence with I, if you do it more than other people, or they, if other people do it more than you. And then vote out all these ideas and unfairness. And then they, for another five minutes, they did the same thing with unfair behaviors. And and mm-hmm. started with I if you do it more than other people, or they if they do it more than you. And then I had them raise their hand and, and give me their examples. And I said, Hey guys, do you notice a pattern here? And they're like, Holy moly! Like all the stuff that began with I was about fairness, and yeah. all the stuff about that was began with about unfairness was started with they. Hmm. And you know, we st- we talked a lot about how how do you debias this? It's really difficult. Economists, psychologists tried to debias people. Uh, it causes people to become more uh, competitive and uh, nasty in conflicts, this bias. It makes mm-hmm. people more likely to choose uh, or depend on objective mediators and arbitrators to choose their side when they actually don't necessarily get to get their, ch- their side chosen because they're biased. So I, I totally agree that the tribal nature is affecting um, all these kind of psychological biases and group level biases that we see with respect to conflict narrative.
0: Yeah. Um- All right. So since we're on the topic of politics, um, from a sort of a bumper sticker version of your argument, it gets kind of hard to understand the – since we're talking about the coalition stuff, Mm -hmm. um, the the traditional modern American conservative thing is simultaneously about looseness and – tightness, right? It is on the one hand, moral traditionalism, yeah. uh, you know, the importance of stigma, the importance of honor, all of these kinds of things. But it's also the importance of economic liberty and individualism and entrepreneurialism. Um, how does that square with your, your thesis? Because it's it really is, it's a divide in the, in yeah. the human heart and not just yeah. between two different cultures. It's in one yeah. culture.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, clearly there's a connection between conservatism and tightness and liberalism and looseness. But like you mentioned earlier, you know, groups are tight and loose in different domains. And the interesting right. issue is to think about why is that the case? Like, why would, you know, uh, some groups really veer very tight in terms of, you know, having, um, you know, moral uh, issues like abortion and, uh, and other related issues, uh, whereas be loose in terms of like gun control or other things mm. like that. And likewise, uh, clearly, liberals are pretty loose in some domains. Um, that conservatives are more tight in, but they're also tighter in terms of the environment and and uh, being uh, vegetarians and things like that. Well, and, and, and mean, things like difficult.
0: anti-racism, right? I mean, yeah. like like the tolerance on the left for whatever the preferred definitions of racism at a given moment for is remarkably intolerant. And I'm not—it's not a criticism, you know—but yeah. like, you cannot drop the N-word. In you can't really drop the N-word on the right these days except for a bunch of swamp-dwelling jackasses, but um, you can't tell ethnically insensitive jokes on the left. It's a very tight culture.
1: That's right. right.
0: And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just, as a pure visitor from Mars thing, this is part of my point, is that I just see tightness and looseness in just different realms, and that's that's the only problem.
1: Well, that's right. I think that, you know, when you think about any group the core values of that group, I would argue, are evolved to be tight. Yeah. And so, for example, for liberals, tolerance is one of the key va- values. And so people become really tight around tolerance. You see that in the Netherlands. You see that and really in- intolerance
0: of <laughs> intolerant people.
1: Well, well, that's right. So that <laughs> yeah. that domain um, becomes tightened. Another, you know, across countries, you know, every group needs to have tight and loose elements or else they become really dysfunctional, like I mentioned. So in Japan, which is really pretty tight, you have like designated times where you could be loose, right? You can like go out. You're supposed to actually this is kind of tight instructions go out with your bosses and get wasted and, and right. be loose. You, there's places
0: rumspringer with the Amish, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So there's yeah, there's always those domains, even in tight cultures, where there's looseness. Um and likewise loose mentalities have domains where they tighten up. And I think that the values that they that they subscribe evolve to be tight. Another example is in the Netherlands, I mean in the New Zealand where there's the kind of tall poppy syndrome, right? And Mm -hmm. which is basically you can't act superior to other people. It's a very egalitarian type place. So that domain of being egalitarian is super tight. Like Mm -hmm. you don't try to stand out. Like in the US, we're always trying to stand out. We're very vertical, very competitive individualism. And so that's a really strict domain in New Zealand. Now, would I say that they are strict in many domains? No, I would. I'd say they're relatively loose. They've had less threat than a lot of countries. Um, They evolved to have more loose elements than tight. But nevertheless, uh, we can find in any system interesting examples of tightening on core values.
0: Yeah, um, so it kind of reminds me, I just wrote this column about this, about um, how in response to the COVID pandemic, lots of people are saying we need a lot more government. Um, this proves that small government is, is bad. I, my problem with that is that if we had been running a tighter government, we would be much better positioned to be loose in our, not loose is the wrong word, much better positioned to respond to this crisis in a certain way. But we've already borrowed $22 trillion. And now whatever we do, which I'm in favor of in terms of dealing with the economic side of this, we're going to have to borrow. Whereas, you know, you had the Great Depression and World War II generations. They came out of those experiences very tight. right And they came out in a way that said, You know, you never know when disaster is going to strike. You never know when the economy is going to fall apart. So live within your means. And that way you'll be better prepared to deal with problems. And I think one of the problems that we've had in Washington is an enormous amount of looseness. Deficits don't matter. Yep. Um, You know, everybody gets their slice of the pie. Um, We measure compassion by generosity with other people's money. And that's left us uh, really ill-equipped to deal with the thing that we are now
1: facing that's right i think that i i also wrote about this recently in the boston globe and i think at multiple levels we've had you know loosening that is really making it difficult has made it difficult to respond at the macro government level like you said the amount of like looseness is just astonishing in terms of the lack of coordination that we need to respond to the crisis um and um You know, some of that has to do with, you know, um, the fact that we are a loose culture and decentralized, but some of it has to do with just, you know, recent events with this government. But -hmm. also at the local level, you know, when you're when you're cultivating a context where there's been relatively little threat or less threat than other cultures, it's hard for people to sacrifice their liberty for security. And, you know, the idea of like str- having these strict rules suddenly is really difficult for people to negotiate in their own minds and with other people. And you still see people out there partying it up down in, you know, yeah. on beaches and, and, and really putting people at risk. And I think that we are tightening and it's taking a little longer than other cultures. But the question is, with what consequence and how will we, based on the imperial study that came out of London, which has suggested that we have sort of tight periods and then loose periods where we do you know allow people to have more freedom, we will be ready um, to be able to um, constantly shift between tight and loose in my terms uh, in the next 18 months. I think we have good historical examples of when we tightened, like in World War II, it took us a little while, but we did it. Um, and we're gonna have to ta- have these conversations about it. This is as much about culture as it is about the virus itself in terms of how we handle it.
0: Yeah, it occurs to me on this tightness and looseness thing and being prepared um, that if you're a small business and you've been living tight, Um, Or even if you've been loose, it doesn't really matter. You might find BlueVine very useful. Yeah, so it's like no secret to anybody that this is a really hard time for small businesses um, and even some big businesses uh, because of the amazing crunch from um, the economic dislocations that are coming from the coronavirus. And cash flow is becoming hugely, hugely important for a lot of people. And BlueVine is one way to deal with that dilemma. Owning a small business is no easy task, and sometimes your cash flow just isn't moving at the speed of your business. Through BlueVine, you can secure a business line of credit in as fast as five minutes. BlueVine is an easy, fast way to support your business growth with a line of credit of up to $250,000. Whether whether you need money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, or pay an unexpected expense, through BlueVine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit, and BlueVine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is easy. Just go to getbluevine.com dingo. Fill out a few simple details, and you're done with your application within minutes. Seeing an offer will not affect your credit score. Once approved, funds can be received in as fast as 24 hours, having peace of mind knowing that funds can be drawn with the click of a button for any business expense. BlueVine has helped more than 20,000 customers and has delivered over $2.5 billion to fund businesses. BlueVine also has advisors available by phone to answer any questions and help meet your business needs. With an a rating from the Better Business Bureau and a nearly five-star review on Trustpilot, see why thousands of satisfied business owners have chosen BlueVine as their go-to source for financing. And so for listeners of The Remnant, BlueVine is offering a special limited-time promotion of a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with BlueVine. Go to getbluevine.com slash dingo. Once again, that's getbluevine.com slash dingo. For more details, we thank BlueVine for sponsoring the podcast. Just go to getbluevine.com slash Dingo. To apply. So before you said there are a lot of people who don't want to give up their their looseness for security. Um, it, one of the things I sort of I, I find fascinating is the number of people who don't want to give up their security f- for liberty or for looseness, right? And so yeah. nimbyism is a great example of that, where a lot of very progressive, decent-minded, straight-ticket Democratic voting people... Are also really averse to uh, deregulation of housing policies in their neighborhood because yeah. their neighborhood is their little enclave. Everybody, you know, whether it's Tacoma Park and around you know. Washington, you know, like. And these are these are very. It's another one of these examples of very loose people who have rainbow flags and signs, you know, resistance banners on their front lawn but don't you dare tell them that you're going to have a low-income housing project in the neighborhood. Not because they're against yeah. low-income people, but just because they like their little Shangri-Las, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> it kind of works... Bo- Again, it works both yeah. ways. Yeah, people it does. People don't like... People don't want to give up... Uh, human beings like security and freedom yeah. on their terms, yeah.
1: right? Uh, yeah, and also some of the work we've, we've done shows that it's much harder to go from tight to loose than from loose to tight. You mm. know, when you're really focused on preserving a value that's really important. It takes much longer as for one thing, it takes much longer to feel like threat is decreasing. Uh, People tend to be vigilant. I think it's, you know, a a human tendency across history to have have like this risk aversion. Once you're tightened up, it's hard to loosen. So a lot Mm -hmm. of the conflict that you're describing is like people having tightness in different domains. Uh, And I think one of the interesting questions is where does that come from? Like, let's try to understand what are the underlying interests and why people have come to have those deep-seated values. How do we negotiate those values? How do we combine the best of tightness and looseness uh, in this country? We need both. For example, we could see that you know, loose states are super creative. They have more artists per capita. They have more. They've had more recreational activities. They have right. uh, more patents per capita. But it's the tight states that are much more able to scale up on things in terms of manufacturing and, and you know, and and we do need to understand where our strengths are in terms of order and openness. Also, I think we're in a huge time of change, like a lot of companies are trying to shift from tight to loose and they don't recognize these differences become, you know, ingrained very, very early. And so people, you know, try to introduce some new looseness into these companies causes a lot of difficulties. We have to initiate these change much more gradually uh, to make organizations work. I've interviewed a bu- bunch of people who said, yeah, we tried to bring in some loose people and we just couldn't stand each other because, yeah. you know, that we just come at the problems from a very different order openness trade-off perspective. So I think there, that there's a lot in the book I talk a lot about this idea of tight loose ambidexterity. How do you, if you're getting too tight, insert some looseness into that system? And what I call basically a flexible tightness. Or mm-hmm. if you're getting kind of loose, how do you insert some structure into that system? Like what I call structured looseness. That's like Uber or Tesla on the flip side, United, you know, is now trying to be a little more flexible Uh, rather than becoming super uber tight. The military struggles with the same thing. Uh, I'm working on a project right now for the U.S. Navy because they know that they need to veer tight. It's it's the military. They need to be coordinated. Uh, But they also recognize they're trading that off on innovation and adaptability. So we're trying to train leaders to be more flexible in terms of when they deploy tightness and looseness in what context. Do we really need to have certain haircut styles and certain socks to wear Right. Um, in the military, where synchrony is found all over the place, we're trying to negotiate some of these rules to have systems have a healthy balance of tight and loose.
0: Yeah, I keep thinking of, there was this, I, I caught this speech 15 years ago by Michael Crichton, you know, the science fiction, yeah. you know, Jurassic Park. And he was telling the story about how he was hiking in like the Hindu Kush or someplace in Pakistan or something like that. And he took a little jump off of a rock. It wasn't more than like two feet high. And, but he did it the wrong way. And the guide said to him, don't ever do that again. And Crichton was like, what are you talking about? I'm just like, I, I'm a really experienced hiker. I know what I can do and I know what I can't do. Blah, 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 blah. And he says, no, you're going to do it the right way because the odds of you spraining your ankle or breaking your ankle from doing it that way were vastly greater. And if you broke your ankle here, we are two weeks from the nearest road and um, we would have to either fly in a helicopter, which we would need to use a satellite phone to get and yada, 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 yada yeah. it would cost tens of thousands of dollars. It would ruin the excursion. Yeah. And that's an example of where you can, if you're going to the park with your dog, you can be really loose how you jump off yeah. of a rock. But if you're, you know, in the badlands of Pakistan, you got to be much tighter, right? And yeah. that's sort of like knowing when to yeah. switch them. Okay, yeah, and, so- and,
1: and psychologists mentioned that, you know, we taught all this cultural intelligence you know, there's mm. all this bit about, you know, general intelligence and emotional intelligence. But now there's new measures, new theory and research on c- what does it mean to be culturally intelligent and what consequences it have? And it, particularly in politics, it's really important. We know it from our own research that if you're dealing with culture, people from other cultures, you're trying to negotiate deals. It's cultural intelligence that predicts the yeah. best deals. It's above and beyond any other kinds of intelligence. And this is a broader point. You know, we tend to not recognize culture as important. So we send people abroad on these assignments. Based on their technical competence their you know intellect but you know they really struggle especially going to tight cultures we have lots of studies that show that you know it's much more hard to adapt to those tight contexts when you come from a loose one so what kinds mm-hmm. of peoples what kind of training can we do i mean i i got into this field because i was just kind of really uh freaked out about how little cross-cultural training there is for people yeah. you know in many contexts in, in the state department in the military uh, a lot of times, you know, we talk about a couple of day training on like do's and don'ts versus these deeper cultural codes. Why they exist? How do we understand why, you know, Michael Crichton had such strict right. rules? I mean, once we understand the deeper cultural program, it's a lot easier to uh, adapt and also to do well in these kinds of negotiations. Um, there was an interesting story where Baker was negotiating with Aziz years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, the failed negotiation was multiply determined. But apparently, you know, Baker went there with a very, you know, kind of typical American kind of low-key emotional style and said, you know, we will, you know, we will attack if you invade. And that apparently the word on the street was Aziz went back to Hussein and said, these Americans aren't serious because he, if he was, he'd be throwing books all around. He'd be real elevated. (laughs) I mean, this is just, there's so many ways in which culture matters. Again, lots of things matter. It's not, it's multiply determined, but I do think it suggests that cultural intelligence is super important to cultivate in this ever globalizing world.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of my just to drag it out of your field closer to mine. One of my great abiding peas is foreign policy realists, who my my best working definition of a foreign policy realist is a foreign policy expert who lost the argument,
1: <laughs> and, because they always
0: take the position that that I I know what people's interests are. I had the right approach to this and somebody dragged in some stuff I think is silly and that won the day. But it turns out that what I think is silly is taken very, very seriously by somebody else. And countries do, you know, going back to ancient Greeks, you know, countries fight over honor yeah. all the time, you know, or perceived slights yeah, on their honor. That's right. Um, and, you know, you know, the, what we're looking at with China, a lot of what we're seeing with them is that they they're sort of like, you know 19th century germany they want yeah. their place in the sun they yeah. want to be recognized for who they are it's not in a cold rational sense yeah purely in their economic interest to behave the way they yeah, are totally it's certainly not in po- it's but not in it's putin's in- interest but it's yeah. in their cultural you know yeah
1: that's right we have a whole dictionary that we publish it's on my website that analyzes honor talk so you can analyze any text any you know blog for how much are people focused on honor and yeah. you know what we find because i do a lot of work in the middle east uh you know it's it's rational to focus on honor in the middle east When you have right. weak institutions when your police you know that don't you know answer calls or you have uh low resources you know your reputation is way more valuable than your money and there's all right. these phrases in arabic about you know um honor rather than bread you know that and it, it's and our models of honor and evolution we can see that they evolved to in contexts where there's weak institutions and when there's low resources, and they're needed to fight off other people, so I, tr- you know, I try to explain to people, you know, in the U.S., the South is more honor oriented, clearly, but like we don't understand that the idea that you could steal someone's self worth is really foreign to Americans. So, like in, in yeah. honor cultures, you know, you can your honor can be gained, lost, and stolen from people very, very easily. Our self-worth is much more like a skeleton psychologists mm-hmm. call it and, and anthropologists like you know you can insult me but like that doesn't actually you know steal my self-worth like it just bothers me but in in uh honor cultures like someone insulting you actually steals your self-worth and you have to prove and and, and get it back so that you're not pounced upon in other interactions so uh i have a so like prison things. life
0: too right yeah. i mean like in prisons you have to stand up for yourself or you get taken advantage of by yeah. everybody yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And I think it's a really rational response. We, we study how honor becomes contagious across people. Like, you know, why is it that if you insulted, we just published a study on this uh, neuroscience study where we looked at when people were observing their in-group getting harmed by someone else, how it motivates in your brain uh, and activates neural pathways so that you seek revenge on anyone in that out-group, not even the perpetrator. Because right. it's really about, like you said earlier, it's about kind of the group instinct to keep your group uh, having significance, having honor, uh having vitality so that other groups won't pounce on you. So it's it's really a story of how does revenge become contagious because of this honor orientation. It makes sense in some contexts and less sense in contexts where institutions are strong, where resources are, are are high. So I think again, this is another example of like culture evolves for reasonable in in contexts that make sense. And yeah, it's, it's funny I understand that to 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 be less ethnocentric.
0: I know a really, really rich, very successful hedge fund guy or investor guy, um, who told me during the rise of Trump in 2015, 2016, he said, you know, Jonah, the thing you have to understand is that integrity lowers the cost of capital. And what he meant by that was that if you're a person who deals honorably, right, and and you're honest with your lenders and your creditors, yeah. and you tell them what's going on, and yeah. if you're going to be late with the payment, you explain why, and you always, you, you live to the the spirit of the agreement, not just the letter of agreement, you can come back to them and borrow money cheaper because they know you're a good risk. But if you're a jerk who constantly screws people and declares bankruptcy to get away from fulfilling your obligations, the cost of capital increases. I just thought it was a really neat way way, for a businessman to talk about honor culture. I
1: want to, I want to talk to that dude, because we actually, (laughs) you know, in some of the studies we do of negotiation, we try to tell people like the getting to yes model that's been works really well in the American ecology where you get to the task, you cut to the chase, you you know get to underlying interest doesn't really work in the Middle East. In our data, mm-hmm. it's honor talk. It's people who they're negotiating honor first and foremost. And if you can negotiate that, meaning that I come to trust you and believe you're reputable, then you can have You're going to get the most fantastic deals after that. You're going to get access yeah. in, in what they call Wasta to all sorts of connections based on that honor reputation. So in our studies, we could see like people are not negotiating the deal; they're negotiating honor. And once you get past that. that's really really, and i think about it's like the verizon guy he's got all these people like standing behind him like once you deal with that dude and you show him you're honorable you have access just like you're a hedge fund guy guy and it's as that we don't have some emphasis on that in the us we do but it just has to be uh cultivated more in contexts like the middle east um in in asia uh, where there's the weaker weaker institutions that you know makes sense here that you know we can have swift trust because we have strong Mm -hmm. institutions In the middle east when we interview professional negotiators they're like what like why would you ever do that we have swift distrust like you'd be a stupid idiot to trust people swiftly (laughs) in these contexts so you have to really flip your logic and say okay we got to think about new ways to negotiate in the middle east and we got to really be focused on showing we're honorable and by the way i i as a cross-cultural psychologist keep making huge mistakes when i go to the region you know even if you Uh look at your phone during a meeting that's kind of dishonorable because it so, right. suggests that like you're not important enough to me for me to not be looking at my phone. I, I, you can gain, lose, and 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 steal people's honor with really uh, very easily in the region, not realizing it with small little behaviors, including me, a schmuck who still you know studies this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I, I it's I have to remember to slow myself down, be more patient. We have lots of research on American impatience in negotiation, and it's same idea. Like let's get to the chase, let's get to the deal. Yeah. negotiating honor and relationships takes a lot longer and even for me i have to be like slow down just chill out forming a right. research team in the region like spend several days just hanging out and getting to know each other which will like you said with your example will go a long way it's not altruism it's not relationality it's really a way to kind of get to the get to the task get to the deals because uh, they're as interested in economics as we are they just get to it sure. to a different place
0: it's a it's a weird i hadn't really thought about it but it's a weird Way of defending golf outings and all those kinds of things, <laughs> right? Because you have to you have to do the process to get the trust level up. Um, yeah. All right, so we should do a little uh, coronavirus. I also want to ask you about um, marriages. Um, uh, I remember you talking about how in your marriage, um, this was on a stage, so I'm not like divulging <laughs> anything.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, that you're loose and your husband was tight. Is that the, word, I, well, the way? Well, I say I
1: be your loose. Uh yeah. and be your site. Yeah, that's right. And he's an he's a lawyer. So, you know, part of it is that some of these differences have to do with, you know, your childhood, your country, your culture, your gender, but also it has to do with occupation. And lawyers are wildly accountable, as are, you know, other right. public officials and clearly people in other industries where there's a lot of coordination needs. And so, you know, when you have to clock your time all the time and you're being monitored, like you you develop that kind of tight mindset. So and I'm an academic. I veer looser. I mean, I clearly have to have some both tight and loose, looseness to create ideas, tightness to implement them, Um, which actually innovation really requires both. But I still veer looser. And so it's a really interesting uh, challenge in a household where, you know, I could be, you know, kind of get a lot of slack for like not not loading the dishwasher correctly, having towels all over the place and (laughs) stuff like that. But we do negotiate it. I study negotiation and that's how we, we deal with it. We identify domains that we both find really deeply important to be tight in or loose in and we try to try to kind of meet in the middle.
0: So since nobody is, or very few people, are all tight or all loose, right? It's more about different contexts and that's whatnot. Right. But um, is there, is is in marriages, is uh, tightness and looseness gendered in any way? And also, is um, is it the case that that sort of opposites attract? I mean, do you get? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just it's yeah. a, it's just yeah. straight up question, curious question. Do 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 two crazy tight people are they more yeah. likely to get married or yeah. less likely to get well, married?
1: Well, you know, we don't have data on that, but I, I mean, I'll just I think it's a it's a really super interesting question um, that you know opposites might attract, but they might not realize that they have these big differences in tight and loose, and it really. It really comes to the fore when you're parenting, I think, because uh-huh. then it's like, no, OK, right. wait, you know, that's really where it comes into play, because, you know, um, it's not obvious what domain should be tight or loose. And that's kind of what we started to do is say, hey, look, certain domains, we agreed on this. And we talked to the kids about it. They know about tight loose so they can, you know, uh-huh. they can relate to the whole idea of it. And we say, look, you know, for these times right now, we want to be tight in like your health behaviors and your schoolwork. But, you know, you got to have some looseness. And so for my my deal on that is like you could be messy. I'm just going to close your mm-hmm. door. You can have your decide when you're going to be go to bed. You know, you I don't have a curfew per se. I just need to know that you're safe and you let me know where you right. are. So, even within the like the constraints of that looseness or within the context of looseness, there's some rules. So, we talk about it. Um, and uh, we try to, as I said, we try to negotiate it. So, I do think that there's no evidence that people, you know, ne- might necessarily get married to people who are different than them, but um on tight loose. But I can say that I think a lot of conflict arises from the construct um, Mm -hmm. that people don't label as such. Like, why is it that, you know, once we understand why is someone tighter or looser, uh, we could try to have more empathy for that. Uh, Why is it that, you know, one person might be super tight in finances? Well, that might've been evolved for good reasons and other people were looser. So, um, you know, I think that's a really important point. Your question on gender is interesting. We haven't found any robust, um, differences in terms of desired tightness or looseness on gender but we do know that women and minorities gen- generally people of lower status live in tighter worlds mm-hmm. uh and what i mean by that is that they're held to stricter standards for you know and, and if they violate rules they're going to get more, much more severe punishment uh and we've seen that uh with some data we have when you know if you have like jamal or jane performing a you know a, a violating behavior in an organization. Um, it, you're much more likely to be penalized by management. I mean, this is with bank mm-hmm. managers. We're reading about people doing different deviant things, and women and minorities are held to higher standards for those kinds of deviant acts. So another way to say that is that majority members can get off the, can be can get off the hook in terms of norm violating mm-hmm. behavior. Powerful people we know do all sorts of weird norm violating behavior. There's lots of research on that. You know, power begets latitude. Uh, right. I, I could say that we see that with Trump mm-hmm. even. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, ironically, you know, we see some huge amounts of looseness, even as he tries to tighten the country in other ways. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with power. Um, and of course, accountability is what we need when we're trying to uh, get people to behave in norm, uh, non-norm violating ways. We need people to hold people to standards when they're loosening up too much.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find int- really interesting about that is that one of the great things about sort of what I call the miracle, right? this this explosion of liberal democratic capitalism and the rule of law and all that kind of stuff. This sort of Lockean revolution stuff Mm. is that um, prior to about 300 years ago, everyone just simply understood, well, of course the king gets to play by his own rules because he's the king, right? (laughs) And then all of a sudden there was this tightening of the rules that the powerful because that, you know, yeah. with, with Locke, what, what Locke or Burke would call arbitrary power, yeah. that nobody has the right to arbitrarily yeah. rule over another. Yeah. If, it's the, if, it, if the rules apply to everybody, then it's okay to have very strict rules as long as they apply to everybody. Yeah. But it can't be based on class. Eventually, we got around to that it can't be based on race or gender, but it took yeah. a long time to, like, work out the inconsistencies of all of this. And one of the things that's sort yeah. of infuriating about Trump is the way... He very much comes from the sort of monarchical part yeah. of the brain yeah. where he thinks everyone else should be held accountable yep. to the rules, except for him. That's right. That's know? why I
1: said simultaneously tightening and loosening, and I think in all the be- all the worst ways, you know, where you know it, it's really affecting the the ability for us to be open um, as a country and and and. We're, we're known for our innovation, our creativity. The more he tries to tighten the country, I mean, now obviously we're in a different situation. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he violates all sorts of rules. And he um, has caused massive uh, rifts around the world in terms of our relationships, of course. And he's not being held accountable. I mean, that's the whole point. When people are watched, when they have to be evaluated to justify and be compensated what, by what they do, this is what accountability is. It's you know when you are held to standards by your group, when you're right. when, when when you're called upon for your bad behavior and that's what we th- that's what's really astonishing that we see i guess it's not so astonishing given our political system that people are not holding them accountable because they're worried about their jobs um yeah, I mean, but that's i always <laughs> often think we should decouple that like why is it maybe we should have shorter term limits so that people would feel more cor- courageous to be able to speak out against norm-violating behavior um in an administration and and i think this by the way i don't think this is I think this happens across party lines. I back do too. To tr- I mean, I, back to the I, a lot point. of the
0: resistance guys are like, how dare you defy democratic norms? I'm going to defy democratic norms to stop you, you mm-hmm. know, and then you get this, you know, tit for tat thing that is a hot
1: mess yeah.
0: in a lot of ways. Cause these I two coalitions, it, I think I, they're all right.
1: Yeah. I kind of wonder also if there's some pluralistic ignorance going on, by which I mean that individually people really dislike and really believe strongly that, um, that, Trump is doing, that uh, That his behavior needs to be held accountable, but they think everyone else thinks that he doesn't. So they're mm. misperceiving the social norm and they're acting on a norm that might not exist. Um, that happens quite a bit in countries where your private attitudes and what and your perception of what other people think gets kind of out of whack. Um, and again, it's called pluralistic ignorance in the US. And I, I kind of think that we need this conversation uh, among people to say, no, wait, maybe we all agree that we got to do something here. We got to make this person more accountable. And we Mm -hmm. have to, you know, that's, that's what we're really lacking right now. And accountability feeds looseness, lack of accountability feeds into looseness. So Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a vicious cycle.
0: All right. So in the few moments we have left, um, what do you think about the response to the coronavirus? Um, do you think it's, I personally don't think it's going to work if it goes on too long. I just don't think Americans are gonna, and I, I don't mean that they're, you can have a majority of Americans agreeing to self-quarantine, but the epidemiology works that if you don't have like a super majority, there's no point in quarantining just some people, right? Except for maybe the truly old and and vulnerable, but that's a different strategy than what we've got now. Anyway. What it, what do you think about how we're handling it and what do you think its chances of success are?
1: Yeah, well, I'd say that, you know, I think the way you've handled it so far has been pretty, <clears throat> pretty poor, like in Italy. I mean, <clears throat> places that have been used to bending the rules that are used to, you know, liking a lot of freedom and, um, and compounding in Italy with, you know, <laughs> touching a lot, hugging and so forth, <laughs> you know, lots of other cultural dynamics that, you know, I think taking, we haven't taken it seriously enough. We haven't tightened it up quickly enough. That's going to cause some you know, a huge increase in cases as compared to, you can argue against the autocrats of China, of Singapore, but uh, by, by st- after they really uh, messed up and hid the virus, they took strict action to get people quarantined and they kept that quarantine and that saved us a lot, that gave us a lot of time. Mm-hmm. So we're tightening up gradually um, as we would predict. Um, and I think the main challenge that we'll have is kind of going through these tight and loose cycles. We need to be prepared to be like, okay, certain during certain periods, we need to tighten up so we can flatten the curve. <clears throat> Excuse me, but, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> but that when we're releasing- We're social
0: distanced enough that I'm not worried about your coughing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you never know. So, you know, with, you know we, need, we need to be effortlessly be able to tighten during, during certain times. This is what the Imperial Report coming out of London is. Mm. And then when we're given the space to have, you know, less distancing, to kind of go back to a normal life, Loosen up a little bit because there's more hospital beds, because there's less of a risk that we're going to have major catastrophes in terms of deaths because we're overriding, overrunning hospitals. But we're going to have to be prepared to be tightening up again as that happens. And that's what the prediction is. We're going to go through cycles of tightening up, quarantining, social distancing and followed by periods of loosening. But I think as you know, as a parent, I need to try to help the kids to kind of get ready for that and to understand yeah. that and to frame the norm tightening around issues of security and safety. They're not around, some people frame it as controlling and, and as unnecessary. Like we have to really help people to understand that as a country, we haven't had a history like a pathogen breakouts like China and, and other countries that have tightened chronically over time, that tightening mm-hmm. helps us to deal with um, these threats in a very real way. And And so I think we need to really have more conversations around issues of why that tightening is absolutely necessary and why when we're told we got to start tightening up again after those loose cycles that we got to take it seriously. Um, and I think it doesn't help that a lot of people have taken so long to realize this is a very serious threat. Um, as I mentioned, there's still people are out and about and not social distancing. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, part of that is also trying to increase, increase the, the credibility of scientists around this issue, uh, that this is not some kind of, um, you know conspiracy theory um also i want to debunk the idea that i think the young are at risk I, I don't think there's some data coming out that suggests that you know there are kids that are getting really sick so yeah. we we can't just think about it as though it's the old person thing um so i think it's a matter of like in china people were worried about getting other people sick so there's a focus mm-hmm. on not just you know the kind of tightening up based on the rules of the government or the communities there's also a sense of like we're in this together let's reshape the metaphor to be around like world war ii we're we're a group. We're going to survive this together. So, when I go outside, if I'm putting other people at risk, I was just in Colorado and California. I'm not going anywhere for like three weeks because I yeah. could put other people at risk. That's a sense that Americans we had that in our cultural past. We can rediscover that that cultural programming to think about the need for rules and the need to protect each other, like we did um, in other times of our life. And I think the more we kind of rehash those stories, and try to going to get on the same page, um, as a nation, the, the, the better we'll be able to deal with the virus.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's all right. I mean, and one of the reasons why we, we can do it is because again, it's, there's something in human nature that responds to these things that way. Right. That's right. All right. Well, uh, Michelle Gelfand, thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we finally did it. I hope you'll come back. Um, the book is rule makers, rule breakers, how tight and loose cultures wire our world. Thanks for being on.
1: Thanks so much, Jonah.
0: Okay, so um, Michelle, has I would say she's left the studio, but she left her living room because we were doing this via the miracle of, it's not Skype, it's something called Squadcast, um, which sounds like you do, when you attach a line to AOC and her friends and throw them very far or something. But anyway, want to thank everybody who's sticking with us at the dispatch during these very difficult times. We're gonna try up frequency on the podcasting. It's just difficult for all the obvious and some non-obvious logistical reasons. Um, and I want to say, look, uh, I understand why you know people are not racing to buy subscriptions to um, anything right now, given the uncertainty that's in the market. Though we're you know we're way ahead of schedule, so we're we're gonna be okay. Um, but if you can subscribe, if you want to get. You know the the morning dispatch has great day by day um, uh, updating on the coronavirus, on the politics of it, on the economics of it. There's great stuff in there. Um, if you can subscribe, that would be great if you're already a subscriber. If you know a few people that you want to forward it to, um that's the best marketing possible is people sharing the newsletters, um, sharing links to this podcast which are still free and are going to stay free. Um, word of mouth is hugely important and support from you guys means the world to us. And we're we're deeply, deeply grateful for it. Um, also grateful to Michelle. I really like this stuff. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, I'm not sure I'm, as I was trying to say in the conversation, I'm a soft subscriber to all of it and I'm a, a hard subscriber to just some of it. But I think as a way of looking at things from a different angle, it's really, really useful. Um, one of the things I think is sort of interesting in my own, you know, my own beat is that this is an argument I've been making about conservatism for decades, which is that, um, conservatism has always sort of questioned its own dogma, at least, at least it did until fairly recently. And there have been these debates for 50 years about the trade-offs between, uh, liberty and order, freedom and virtue. And where do you draw these lines? And there are different times and different contexts where you gotta draw the line differently depending upon context, because context is everything. And uh, that's not situational ethics, that is just the reality of the world. And so I always kinda like when you get confirmation of Hayekian stuff, of cr- traditional conservative Burkean stuff from a completely weird angle. And Michelle's not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, you know, a serious conservative. But she's very interesting and has interesting things to say about all of this stuff. So anyway, I just want to get that out there because I was looking at my notes here. Um, So anyway, we will be back next week. Um, Please uh, keep up supporting. Please keep the comments coming on the website at thedispatch.com. Stay safe. And uh, we'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.